Well, what do you think there, Hot Rod? I think that he should never be forgiven. He's a traitor. He's a pig. He's a just a minute. You've never done anything wrong in your life? Well, let's watch the match. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Following rustic exhibition requires discretionary viewer participation. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 89 of Greetings from Allentown. I'm your host, Peter Winson. And today, I think I'm going to head home, have a seat on the sofa, eat some mac and cheese, you know, some comfort food in a very comfortable place, which for me is WWF 1991. This would be superstars from September 28th of that year. Such an exciting time for me to look back on. No, not in my real life because I was in the seventh grade at that time and my wife has this theory and I shared this with her that anybody who enjoyed middle school in really any way is a terrible human being because it was more or less a negative experience for all of us but no I'm I'm talking about the World Wrestling Federation from that time no I'm not thinking about steroid scandals and all the stuff that was on the horizon all i think about is that rick flair is finally here and he's going to have the big confrontation with hulk hogan now that happened on the funeral parlor in an episode that i've already covered so this is a different confrontation that rick flair would have with one rowdy roddy piper who is in the broadcast booth here on superstars First, let me get in my plugs. You can email the show, greetingsfromallentown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash greetingsfromallentown. Give me a follow on Twitter at gfallentownpod. You're probably listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. And if you subscribe to the feed, which God knows you should be for all the great shows, which I'll be getting into more later in the program, you would not have missed my appearance on Lucha Afterground earlier this week, talking about the Season 4, Episode 21 edition of Lucha Underground, which is their ultimate Lucha show, which would be Quattro Part 4, since this is the end of the fourth season. I really enjoyed doing that one. I was also on the Place to Be podcast as part of Place to Be Nation, this past Monday, talking about the Saturday Night's Main Event from October of 1988, and that was a lot of fun as well. As for my week, I I did not have a whole lot going on here. This is the weekend in the United States. This was done, I think, in Europe last week, because God knows you can't have stuff synced up in any sort of way and have it make sense. The week that we set the clocks back 
by an hour, which is fine in terms of, well, you get an extra hour of sleep that way. But I have to tell you, I don't particularly care for daylight savings time or daylight saving time, as it's actually called. I want to make sure I get the pronunciation correct on that. It's a Woodrow Wilson thing in the United States where he was the one who was the political leader, at least, who introduced it. And that generally means that it's bad because Woodrow Wilson is like the horrible president that nobody ever talks about being horrible. But let me just run through my plan of daylight saving that I think is going to please the two political parties, much as I hate them both, because my entire idea to resolve this clock change thing once and for all is that when we get to next March, because what's done is done, and we go to set the clock ahead an hour, instead of doing that, we set the clock ahead 40 minutes. And you're going to say, that that is completely crazy. That turns us into like freaking Newfoundland. You know, there's an hour and a half ahead of the Eastern time zone. But hear me out on this. The Democrats will like this because it basically establishes daylight saving time as a year-round sort of thing, which they tend to like because of this phony baloney energy savings, even though it really just kind of shifts things from one form of energy to another. And it also annoys the populace to change the clocks. Republicans will like it because it's what I like to call clock imperialism, where America stands up and says, this is what time it is, and we dare you to match us because... We have the largest financial markets in the world, and you probably want to be synced up with us. (laughs) I think both sides would actually appreciate that sort of thing. Also, as we get later into the year, one of my fall projects is making sure the snowblower actually starts, which if you've ever seen my driveway, is a very important thing for when we get 15 inches of snow at once, because if I had to shovel it, I would die. So I also picked up a bottle of bourbon. In this case, I, I tried something called Yellowstone Select Bourbon. I try something new. Usually my brands are Knob Creek, Four Roses, and Buffalo Trace. So that's really what I like the most. So if anybody's got bourbon recommendations along those lines for me, that, that is also happily accepted. I was also heading out to the beer store because I'm obsessed with this one beer called Anchor Christmas Ale that actually the formula in it changes every year and the label also changes. In fact, I have a poster that I'm looking at right now that has, I think it's the first 40 years of labels on it from 1975 up through 2014, uh, I want to say that it is. I, I, I keep the magnum size bottles every year, or at least the years where I can get it. I have three of those that's next to my Roger Goodell autograph football, which is its own story that, well, I guess that'd be for another time. Drinking 48 ounces of beer at once can be a a tall task, but I'm I'm generally up for it. I didn't find a store that had last year's version, but I still have two magnums in the fridge of that. So at least it's nice to know where I'll be able to get it once it makes its way out from San Francisco. And I'll just, you know, I'll just take care of it then. I'm going to get mine at some point. So 1991 WWF, I've, I've come home 
again after a couple of weeks of Continental, ECW, WCW show as well. Although I think I might have done Shotgun more recently, but that doesn't really matter. I actually considered when trying to come up with new ideas and concepts for this show, I thought about doing a 12-part series where I was only going to do WWF from this year and I was going to do one show from each month on the calendar. Then I thought I would really kind of run out of crap to say about certain guys because you get a lot of repeats. I mean, God knows that 89 episodes now and Hacksaw Jim Duggan has been on like probably 20 of them and you just run out of things to say about guys and trying to come up with a new angle, especially when it's Duggan in the same year in 91 when he's really not doing much because Dino Bravo is thank God out the door so that feud is finally over but this month and in particular this this day that this was taped not so much September 28th when it originally aired but this was taped on September 9th 1991 which is a rather historic day in World Wrestling Federation history not 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 in sports history, although the Dallas Cowboys announced their arrival to the world, the Jimmy Johnson Cowboys, at a close loss to the Washington Redskins 33-31 on Monday Night Football, a game in which I, I remember they had the lead in the first half, and then I went to bed or fell asleep, and when I saw that Washington had won, I was, you know, just kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, eh, whatever. This was the night that Ric Flair appeared on WWF television for the first time, randomly, and it seems kind of an odd choice in retrospect that he appeared on primetime wrestling instead of one of the syndicated shows. But remember, you have more of a lag for that rather than primetime. I'm not sure how they shot it. This is my beloved primetime wrestling from 1991, where they probably shoot it the same week and then throw it on the air. I'm sure that they may have taped more than one at a time especially those instances where they had to use employees as hostages for the studio audience little did they know that they had a kid up in woburn massachusetts who would have been more than willing to come down and fill one of those seats so flair appears on prime time comes out with the belt with bobby heenan and heenan is wearing a primetime wrestling sweatshirt that annoys the hell out of me because all the lettering is completely off center and he does the promo in his robe and <laughs> mouths off to a woman, momentarily forgetting that he's no longer in Techwood Studios and that that is generally frowned upon. When you watch the WWE version of the Flair promo, that tends to be edited out. What I'm saying is, Hogan, put up or shut up. Give me the belt. Walk away. Nobody gets hurt or what. You got a problem with that, sweetheart? I'll show you what I'm about later on. You keep tight right there. Yeah. So, yeah, let's take it out of the official edition because he probably didn't have authorization to turn around and do that like he used to with Shivani and David Crockett. Uh, woo! In room 707 at the Marriott Hotel in whatever city he's you know, calling his shot. I think one reason he might have debuted on primetime as well is they certainly needed the help with the ratings because that had been plummeting the entire time that they had gone to that 
format that I liked, but, you know, maybe other people didn't like it so much. Yeah, it had some ups and downs during the time frame, but you can notice during that segment that Sean Mooney is hosting, a definite sign that Vince had just given up on it. By June, Vince McMahon was no longer hosting primetime because he was just going to wash his hands of the entire thing. But there's more than Ric Flair to all of this. At this taping on September 9th, this is actually the second set of Canada tapings that the WWF had done in 1991. Gives it kind of a 1997 sort of feel when it felt like they were taping Raw in Canada every every other week, it seemed, during that summer of the Hart Foundation. This taping cycle was in Ottawa and Cornwall, Ontario, Earlier in July, they had taped in Edmonton and Calgary. The challenge taping was in Calgary, and it was one of those episodes where Heenan stood in front of the green screen and held up the NWA title. It was one of the episodes in early August. I mean, Canada was on quite a roll in 1991. When you think about it, you got Bret Hart winning the Intercontinental title. You know, that that's a big deal from a wrestling perspective, but Canada also won the final Canada Cup that would be held because they found out that the guy organizing it, Alan Eagleson, was a massive crook. And let us not forget that it was one of those weird instances where the Canadian Football League stole the expected number one pick in the NFL draft out from under the NFL, Rocket Ismail signing with the Toronto Argonauts, which had a little monetary backing behind it in the form of King's owner, Bruce McNall, speaking of crooks, and Wayne Gretzky and John Candy also had an ownership interest as well. That also happened in 1979, by the way, where there there was a guy named Tom something or other that he ended up signing in the CFL because he wanted to play there. And eventually he would end up in the NFL, but not until about four years later. But also some old names got a bit of a refresh as you got later into 1991. One of them, a guy who had been around for over eight years by this point, Tito Santana, who actually the vignettes for El Matador started airing around this time. Unfortunately, it is not on this particular video, so I'm not going to be covering it, but you've probably seen, you know, he training to be a bullfighter, and three weeks later, all of a sudden now, he's El Matador, which feels like they could have used a little bit more training. You have the reboot of Sergeant Slaughter, which now, five weeks after SummerSlam, we're trying to turn him back into an American hero. And one of those vignettes, an interview with Gene Okerlund, is on this show. So I'll be covering that a little bit later. The Randy Savage reinstatement which was denied by Jack Tunney the week before this. So Savage, being the macho man that he is, trashed Jack Tunney's office. By the way, I wish there was video of that. I I don't believe there was any actual video of Tunney's office being trashed. I would have liked that. But this whole angle was not without its complications, starting with the fact that Randy Savage had actually given his notice to the WWF. So he could have walked to WCW as he did in 1994 
but this was at a point where maybe WCW wasn't in a good spot to be signing away guys, given given how low they were. But Savage is part of this major angle when he's working out his notice near the end of a contract. It's very interesting, the amount of trust that Vince McMahon had in him in order to do those things. And then, of course, the ultimate refresh that you got is Jake the Snake Roberts. And I say ultimate, no pun intended, because he did turn heel on the Ultimate Warrior shortly before SummerSlam. And I do have to wonder what might have happened with the Warrior and that feud going forward. Although I don't have too much interest because I don't really care for the Ultimate Warrior. I've said it numerous times. So we switch it over to Randy Savage and get Jake involved with the Macho Man. And that would be a rather interesting feud, especially early on when Savage is not allowed to wrestle. And this is all pre-Cobra Bite, which I covered back in episode 65. So there's a lot of different things going on. This is during what I like to call, and it's sort of my talking point for 91 and into 92 WWF, the mini-attitude era. You did not have women walking around in bikinis. You didn't have guys drinking beer and saying ass and holding up middle fingers or anything. But there was a certain edge to the product. And I don't mean Adam Copeland. There was a certain je ne sais quoi to what was going on at this time. Maybe it was the fact that Bruce Pritchard wasn't there. I, I, I don't know what it was. All I know is that I enjoy watching the hell out of it. And over the last several weeks, I've spent many late nights watching 1991 WWF, and I've just become giddy with some of the, the random hilarious stuff that maybe I didn't pick up on at the time. In fact, I certainly didn't pick up on it as a 12-year-old. But stuff that really makes me laugh now, like the Warlord as a professional wrestler, he's on this show. It's just <laughs> the Warlord. <laughs> this this kills me. We have Brett. He is wrestling on this show in Canada. So a uh, nice little thing going on there. And we'll also see Brett's Canadian... <laughs> Well, a guy who would become a nemesis in Canada six years down the road in Shawn Michaels, who is still with Marty Jannetty in September. This is before they would start having all of their issues leading to the breakup in the barbershop when Jannetty tried to escape the clutches of Shawn Michaels by diving through a window. And, of course, because... (laughs) always Hacksaw Jim Duggan is on this show and we also get a visit from the natural disasters so with that in mind let's get right into the show and why don't we kick it off with a sports moment from the year 1989 for episode 89 and the flames four of them get out up to center and coming in as Lube Newendike centered it Now, I know what you're thinking. More hockey? Why are you playing more stuff where the Montreal Canadiens lose? And yeah, that might be part of the motivation. Or, oh, you're just sucking up to the Calgary Flames contingent of your audience. Cough, cough, Kelly Nelson. But I wanted to play that because that was Lanny McDonald's final game in the NHL. And he was a great player for so many years for the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Calgary Flames. And he scored go-ahead goal 
in Game 6 of the 1989 Stanley Cup Final. He was known for his giant bushy mustache. One of the all-time great mustaches in professional sports. It makes Ned Flanders' mustache look like John Waters, by way of comparison. And anyway, I recall going to a Stanley Cup Final game in 2011, and it was Game 4, and I, I had to pee after the game very, very badly, so I waited in the line, and I got in there, and as I'm washing my hands, who happens to be standing there but Lanny McDonald himself? Because you'd never mistake him for anybody else, because he still has that mustache at probably nearly 70 years old at, at that point, maybe maybe closer to 60. But I just thought, wow, this is so cool. I just peed in the same bathroom as Lanny McDonald. <laughs> It's so utterly ridiculous. It's like I didn't even talk to him. It's just the fact that I peed in the same room that his mustache was. Anyway, so our commentators for now are Vince McMahon and Roddy Piper only. There is no Randy Savage there. He had taken some time to be with Elizabeth, it seems, after the unfortunate incident of his wedding reception, which we will see a little bit of footage on later, so I'll save my thoughts for that. His reinstatement appeal to Jack Tunney was denied and as I said he tore apart Jack Tunney's office and why the hell could they have not just done video of him tearing apart office they they did a whole skit where Terry Funk and Tony Gurria tore apart a makeshift saloon they couldn't have done a thing where they just set up an office and had it, it could have been a great rib on somebody in Titan Towers or maybe there is video and I just haven't seen it but the, actually the week before this is blocked on YouTube, both Wrestling Challenge and Superstars of Wrestling. So Vince tells Roddy that the Macho Man has been sanctioned by the president. Because the Macho Man, Randy Savage, has been placed on probation by President Jack Tunney. Actually, Vinny, I think it was a little bit more than that. Double secret probation. Double secret probation, sir? You don't think of Jack Tunney as such a hard ass, but really on the Savage thing, I think he was looking to grab the bull by the balls, that somebody needed to put their foot down, and that foot would be him. For our opening contest, we have the Brooklyn Brawler taking on Intercontinental Champion Brett the Hitman Hart, who comes to the ring in that marching band jacket that, I have to admit, I don't care for it very much. These are the ones that all, I think, got stolen once he was in WCW that he complained about in his book. While I never really cared for them, I'm also looking at it from the perspective at least it made him look kind of different than everybody else. He and Anvil used to wear those to the ring. Remember Neidhart used to wear that pink thing that made him look like a, like a nurse or something like that? Never quite understood that. But Brett versus the Brooklyn Brawler is an interesting matchup for a couple of diff- different reasons. This was actually one of Brett's first matches in the WWF back in 1984, him versus Steve Lombardi. I think in his book he says that it's his second or third match. He tends to be pretty good with the facts, so it's it's certainly an early-on match for him in 1984. But looking to the end of his career in the WWF in 1997, or at least in this run, 2010 doesn't count. This is the Madison Square Garden match that we were supposed to get the week after Survivor Series on November 15th, 97. You say, why the hell would these two guys be meeting up at that point? Well, 
If Brett was the WWF champion after Survivor Series and had continued on with the company, what had happened was Steve Lombardi, the Brooklyn Brawler, had won a dark match battle royal at the MSG show on September 22nd, which was the first Monday Night Raw held at Madison Square Garden. So after you get through Survivor Series, and that, of course, gets in the way, the brawler is supposed to be challenging for the title on that next MSG show. And he did actually face Shawn Michaels and lost to him in a 15-minute match that looks kind of like a maybe thank you for your years of service to the Brooklyn Brawler. It's kind of an interesting footnote in late 97 WWF history. The thing that I've always wondered about Lombardi is, why is he a Yankee fan? I, I never quite understood why this guy from Brooklyn, who clearly has trouble you know, getting on the right side of things, winning matches, you'd think he'd be more of a Met fan, you know, the lovable losers. But you have to remember, this gimmick started in 89, things were kind of upside down in New York for baseball. The Mets were the quote-unquote good team, and the Yankees were going in the toilet. But you just think of it, you think, well, why, why is he not a Met fan? I, 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 don't, I don't quite get it. The brawler can't quite get anything going here. He gets hip-tossed and clothesline, and his foot gets caught, and he's just kind of taken down with a leg trip, and the stomp to the gut by Brett where he teases the sharpshooter, as you'd see him do in many of his squash matches. I noticed that when Brett gets the Intercontinental title, he'd been a tag team champion a couple of times before, so this is nothing new holding a belt. But him him having a singles title, something changes, and I don't know if it's just imperceptible or if if I'm imagining it in my head, but when he does his little promo here the little inset promo i feel like he speaks with a lot more confidence in himself now that i've won the intercontinental championship belt i knew it wasn't going to be easy to defend but i'm going to take on all comers and i'm not going to duck anybody it's fascinating how the fighting champion thing is a theme of his intercontinental title reign in the beginning because that's how his world title reign would start the following year after he wins it in the beginning of October in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. It, But here, it's more out of necessity because the logical thing is he wins the title for Mr. Perfect at SummerSlam and then you do rematches afterward. You could probably do two months worth. But Mr. Perfect was hurt and had that back injury, and you wouldn't even see him wrestle for over a year. So you got to scramble and figure out somebody to kind of put in that spot. And you can do a combination of things, but they would actually lean on one particular opponent who we will be seeing a little bit later in the show. I don't think the fighting champion thing would have hurt his reign in any sort of way because this is a guy coming from a tag team that you're now asking the audience to accept as a singles champion. And most of the audience did do that, but for anybody left over, you want him beating a variety of different guys. In fact, he beat Big Bully Busick in the September 23rd episode that I covered back in episode 65. And he is dominating Lombardi here. Shots of the gut, Russian leg sweep. We don't get the full five moves of Doom because this, this is... 
in Canada. Brett is going to be completely dominant, and he does finish it off with the sharpshooter to put him away. Vince made an interesting offhand comment to Roddy Piper after the match, saying, the Intercontinental title would look good around your waist. Kind of some odd foreshadowing there some five months before Piper would end up winning that title. Actually, only four months. So, Brett still trying to establish himself here as the Intercontinental Champion with a TV taping in Canada. And Brett, you know him. He's not going out there and letting the brawler get one iota of offense in Canada against the great Canadian hero. That just wasn't going to happen. You're going to be the superstar when you show up with the likes of Hulk Hogan of the Big Boss Man, action figures, and Undertaker Tombstone. What about the wrestling buddies, Hulk Hogan wrestling gear, or collector's cards? And while supplies last with every purchase of any item, you'll receive free a World Wrestling Federation Superstar poster featuring either the immortal Hulk Hogan or the Ultimate Warrior. There is a little bit of context that's required for this Toys R Us sponsored update segment where Oakland is running through all the merchandise that you can get at your local Toys R Us and you can get a poster of Hulk Hogan or the Ultimate Warrior who has been fired a month before this would have aired. Well, as it turns out, according to the wrestling observers of the time, they were talking to the Warrior, perhaps looking to bring him back, which feels like a little soon given all that had happened. But mainly, the sponsor Toys R Us was sitting on a lot of those Ultimate Warrior posters and was like, hey, could you at least give him a mention on TV? And at least pretend for a little while that he's still there so that we can eventually move these posters that are just sitting there. But hey, I mean, I suppose they could have just thrown him away. But very interesting how they openly mention him so shortly after what turned out to be a rather infamous firing that led to all sorts of legal documents that came out later. So we get a clip of the end of that SummerSlam match. No, not the Warrior actually getting fired. That was all backstage, out in the ring. Hogan pinning Sergeant Slaughter with the leg drop. Sid Justice with the count as the referee. A little too fast, in my opinion. It seems to be something that would plague WWF special referees for a long time. I mean, that Mike Tyson three count at WrestleMania 14 was about, like, 1.3 seconds. So Sergeant Slaughter, after... SummerSlam 91, went into what they called seclusion. But naturally, for some reason, Gene Okerlund was able to track him down in the middle of wherever he was, not unlike Corporal Kirshner back in the Tuesday Night Titans episode that I covered in episode 30, where he talked to him at more like the middle of a jungle area. Slaughter looks like he's in the middle of the woods, which not a bad place to be in September, I mean, you got some foliage, and, you know, maybe you can find pe- Sergeant Slaughter turning into, like, uh, <laughs> Ralph Waldo Emerson or something back there. And they're now trying to figure out a way to undo and unwind the entire Iraq angle, which was very heated and perhaps <laughs> a little offensive with the way it was presented but you still have sergeant slaughter under contract and you want to do something with him going forward and you can't do anything with iraq because well the war the gulf war was over by the time wrestlemania aired 
So here is what they decided to do: they would have Slaughter give these speeches, like the one here. I got exactly what I deserved at that match made in hell at SummerSlam. When I reflect back, when I wanted to become the World Wrestling Federation champion, I didn't care who I associated with. The scum of the earth, the slime, the sleaze. It didn't matter who I chummed with. I wanted to become the World Wrestling Federation champion at all cost. I didn't care about my family anymore. I didn't care about my friends anymore. I didn't care about my country. I turned my back on my country. I wanted to become the World Wrestling Federation champion. I was blind by ambition. I didn't care what or who or why I had to do what I did. I stepped on everyone. But you don't know what it's like to be in hell, because I do. When I lost the World Wrestling Federation championship, I lost a title, a symbol. But more importantly, I lost self-respect. I lost self-esteem. I lost my family. I lost my friends. But most important is I lost my country. I don't blame my friends for never wanting to speak to me again. I've lost them. There's nothing I can do about that. I don't expect my family to ever forgive me for what I did. I have to live with that. I don't expect anybody to look at Sergeant Slaughter and say, "Oh, we're sorry, Sergeant Slaughter. I deserve exactly what I got." But there's one thing above all those things I just spoke of that I want, and I want it real, real bad. And that is, I want my country back. You know, Sarge, the American people are very forgiving, but they'd be more forgiving if you took a little bit of a less Magellan-esque route to get to your freaking point, which was, yeah, I'm sorry, the end kind of justified the means for me, it was near the end of my career, and I really wanted to be the world champion, so I did whatever it took. Eh, it took him about three minutes to get to that point. The quest for power, like I said, especially for a guy late in his career. It's not going to have many chances at the world title. That's how you end up with Ronnie Garvin world champion in 1987 because nobody else really wanted it. He stepped up and said, you know what, I'm, I'm nearing the end of my career and, and I will do this. So this is kind of like one of those famous deathbed confessions, which, by the way, Charles Darwin, that's all phony and that has been completely debunked. So Sergeant Slaughter, kind of like Oscar Wilde here, the famed author who converted to Catholicism on his deathbed. And there's, you know, a list of royalty. Constantine the First converting to Christianity on his deathbed and all that sort of stuff. It's understandable that with Slaughter nearing the end of his wrestling career that he doesn't want to go out as the Iraqi sympathizer thing that caused 
headaches for so many and consternation in the media. Bob Costas not showing up for WrestleMania 7 and all, all that sort of thing. You think back to Andre the Giant, who was being phased out of the WWF, and they made sure to turn him babyface at the end. But what slaughtered the thing was so heated, <laughs> and also we're literally five weeks past the point where he is main main eventing alongside a guy who is <laughs> looks exactly like Saddam Hussein and the Iron Sheik portraying an Iraqi colonel for whatever reason. It just seemed a little too soon, but again, the clock the clock is ticking. So fine, I accept your premise, WWF, that we have to do something and turn it around with this guy. But there were other potential ways to do this. Now, I'm not usually a fan of reading other people's rebooking ideas, and I did see one that I thought was rather interesting, which was. <laughs> <laughs> this would have been maybe a little too complicated for WWF television, but then again, they were doing a lot of interesting stuff around this time. And it would be that Slaughter was actually a double agent for the American military by posing as an Iraqi sympathizer, and then they would make up some cockamamie story about how he ended up saving lives in the end. That's fine. Like I said, maybe a little too complex for wrestling. So... My idea is that they make him a lone wolf sort of guy for a while. Not like Baron Corbin or anything. I'm talking about like a true lone wolf where he basically becomes a vigilante for justice. Kind of like where they were going with that Furface character earlier in 1991, which I should probably cover one of those episodes at some point where Brutus Beefcake under a mask he's also known as the mariner and, and probably some other stuff where you just come in headbutt a guy and dispatch one of the heels like an earthquake that's something they could have maybe done for sergeant slaughter where he goes around trying to help various baby faces and he's rejected several times because people just do not trust him and then eventually you can build up to him helping somebody or maybe he gets in trouble and then that's where you have a hacksaw Jim Duggan come down and help him and then boom you end up getting back to the same spot that you got to in November where you have Sergeant Slaughter and Hacksaw Jim Duggan joining together and forming a tag team heading in to 1992 so that's my idea for Sergeant Slaughter if, if you're not going to keep him off television for a while you make him this lone wolf character. So basically, not unlike what WCW did with Sting in 96 and 97, except we're not going to have Sergeant Slaughter rappelling down from the rafters. That, that would have been a bit too much. That song, It Ain't Over Till It's Over by Lenny Kravitz, actually fell out of the American Top 40 on that week after a good 17-week run and peaking at number two on the charts. Lenny Kravitz's mother 
is the actress who you may remember from the Jeffersons, Roxy Roker. And I love the story of how she ended up getting the role on the Jeffersons. She's in for the audition, and the producers or the casting people said to her, would you actually be comfortable in an interracial couple being married to a white guy? And she pulled out a picture of her husband, who is a white Jewish man named Kravitz, and says, yeah, this is my husband right here, so I don't think it would be a problem at all. I absolutely love that story. And I also love the Jeffersons, and I miss the days when it was on the channel TV One in the mornings, and I would watch before work, but that was like five years ago now, and I watched pretty much every episode two or three times, so it was a good run, and now I get Parks and Rec in the mornings on FXX. Now, it ain't over till it's over. For our uh, <laughs> for our enhancement team here, we have Barry Hardy and Dwayne Gill, who is not over until he's over. Because, no, he is not portraying anything remotely resembling Gilberg or Goldberg at this time. He looks more like if Howard Finkel put on the tights, something like that, with the way his hair is. And also... The song title applies to their opponents on this day, the Rockers, for their teaming is not over until it's over. They are still together, and we're not starting the process of them having issues with each other publicly, not for a little while yet, because we still have more merchandise to move, just like in that Toys R Us thing. We have Rockers merchandise all over the place in 1991. I think there may have been a sense that, yes, the houses might be down this year, but maybe we can make up for it by kind of doubling down on our merchandise because you see the Rockers t-shirts in the crowd and especially those green hats that were a little bit ubiquitous. And in fact, Shawn Michaels is wearing one here. But where I remember that hat the most is from that woman who was wincing during the Cobra Bite angle in uh, late in November when Savage is getting bit by Jake the Snake's Cobra. Uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, a man who wears a kilt all the time and has been made fun of as both a babyface and a heel for his fashion choices, it's kind of weird that he would go in on the Rockers and their choices. You know, you'd look great in that hat, wouldn't you? Ah, uh, yeah. I said they got a lot of talent. I didn't say they know how to dress. <laughs> Mummy dresses you a little funny. Wait a minute. I don't see any Rocker wearing a kilt out there. I, mean, I know. Talk you about got... a little bit funny. You're throwing an awful lot of stones here this week, aren't you? Well, that's a fun little exchange. I, I more prefer the combative relationship of Vince and Jesse, but that's just me. Now, it's been established that I'm not a fan of Shawn Michaels in any sort of way. However, these guys, him and Jannetty, are going to rank high in my GWWE greatest tag team ever at Place to Beat Nation when I do get to the voting, which, by the way, is now open and will close on December 31st. So do your research and get your ballots in as soon as possible. It's a tough minefield that they worked in. I think you have to consider when tag teams worked, like the kind of environment they were in. And in the late 80s, it was very difficult to stand out because there were a lot of memorable tag teams. And the Rockers certainly stood out in that crowd. My method in that to, to develop my top 100 is to take teams that held the tag team title, at least 
during periods where the tag team titles meant something. When you get to the late 90s and it's basically just two single wrestlers together, I'm, I'm not going to factor those in quite as much because uh, I'm going to put a premium on actual tag teams who were full-time and contributed to a functioning tag team division. That's That's kind of the way I'm going into this. And the Rockers certainly can lay claim to being the best tag team in WWE history to never win the tag titles. Because you think nowadays, pretty much every combination gets a run with the tag titles. But back in the late 80s, you had Demolition holding it for so long, and the Rockers never got a crack at it. Well, at least officially. I mean, they did win them at a Saturday Night's Main event in 1990, but you have the rope break, and then it gets overruled. They keep the title on the Hart Foundation when they decide not to fire Jim Neidhart. Hardy gets worked over by Marty Jannetty. Barry Hardy has got the thing that I always enjoy, the striped socks that go above the boot. Always kind of makes me laugh. You get a double team. And uh, both the enhancement guys get, uh, they, they put their head down. Cardinal mistake for a ring veteran. You get the Sean and Marty super kick party, original sauce version. And Sean keeps his hat on the entire time, which I'm not sure if HBK, which of course he wasn't known as that then, was starting to you know show signs of receding hairline even then. But yeah, seeing him completely bald is very, very strange. Now, Vince, in the middle of this match, just decides to do an awkward transition and plug Hulk Hogan's latest venture. Sergeant Slaughter certainly giving things an awful lot of thought over this last month, and he no doubt is a a commando in in every respect. And speaking of that, Suburban Commando, the Hulkster's new film, is going to open this coming Friday. That should be exciting as well. I really need to just stop talking about it and just do it and watch Suburban Commando. I mean, God knows it's rained here in Massachusetts the last four or five weekends in a row. So I'm I'm kind of running out of excuses. We're heading to the winter. I'm going to be watching that movie at some point, and maybe I'll do something podcast-related on it. Sean loses his hat doing corner mount punches on Gil, who would go on to become a much bigger part of the Attitude Era than Shawn Michaels would. Clothesline. And then more on the Macho Man not showing up for the <laughs> announce gig this week, to to which they say, well, can you really blame him? But all I could think is, since Savage is on probation, shouldn't that probation period include showing up for work on time and as scheduled? It's kind of strange, but there are reasons for that that I'll get to in one of the later segments. A rocket launcher of sorts ends it and picks up the win it's sean just kind of throwing marty through the air not like the press slam into the headbutt like the british bulldogs used to do i think sean was actually hurt in this match because you don't see the rockers at SummerSlam 91 this being taped only a couple of weeks after that and this is of course one of the last matches that you get from these two guys before you start building that tension between the two of them, leading to the final battle in the barber shop. He's not going to show up this week here, folks. We apologize. We thought, in fact, Randy Savage would be here. But the fact of the matter is, when you consider that he was placed on probation, maybe you can't blame him for not showing up. 
Yes, I'm sure all the excuses would fly for, say, somebody who got probation in lieu of jail time, and <laughs> that person says, well, can you blame me for not showing up to meet with you, Mr. or Mrs. Probation Officer? <laughs> I don't really see that happening. So now we get, courtesy of Coliseum Home Video, a clip of the greatest audible in wrestling history, the wedding reception of the Macho Man, Randy Savage, which originally aired on the September 7th episode of Superstars. Now, as I said, I've been watching some of the episodes from around this time, and I've been downright giddy <laughs> watching it, and this would be one of the reasons why. In this clip, which I'll never get tired of, that's where the snake appears. You get the little close-up of the snake. There's total chaos. Now here's the Undertaker running in with the urn, hitting Savage, you know. Now the snake is going after Liz. Jake grabs a hold and just kind of scares her. The image of a guy wagging a snake at a woman is a little bit weird. Liz is just sort of crawling away. Savage can't do anything about it, but luckily... <laughs> There's Sid wearing a red shirt with that giant hairdo that he had at the time. I think it's Sid's hair that really makes me laugh the most. But I'm also thankful for the fact that this is, of course, around the time when <laughs> Sid Justice... Sid Fish's Sid Uni had that incident with Mike Graham and Brian Pillman, I believe it was October of 91, where there was an altercation and Sid came back with a squeegee to do battle. Here he came back with what is like the kind of chair that you would see at a wedding, like at an outdoor wedding, you know, white, and he does save the day. As I said, one of the great audibles in wrestling history, although... I have to wonder what might have been originally planned. Would would it have been the Ultimate Warrior actually saving the day on behalf of Savage, which would have made sense, although what do you do then with Sid Justice going forward? Because then you could move right into that Warrior and Savage, and Savage sort of forgives the Warrior for all, all the things that have happened between those two guys because he helped them at his wedding reception. Thank God for the Ultimate Warrior. Might have changed to that. Instead, we got, thank God for Sid Justice. And that was good enough. The only problem I had with that wedding <laughs> wedding reception is just kind of looking at the full set when you get to see the longer clip. It looks suspiciously similar to where Butcher Vashon had his wedding reception back on TNT in the mid-80s. Now, I, I'm not sure about that. It also looks suspiciously like that bar room where Terry Funk and Tony Gurria had their little bar fight in that other episode of TNT. Again, not not saying it's definitely it, but uh, that, that kind of thing both bothered me and amused me at the same time. Well, Hot Rod, uh, it's a good thing the Macho Man is not here because of the guest of uh, Paul Bear. Who's the guest? Let's let Paul Bear tell us. Hey, Piper, maybe if you weren't busy eating a garage during the intro when Vince actually said that Jake the Snake Roberts would be on the funeral parlor, you wouldn't have to ask like a moron. Also, could you at least look at the rundown before we start doing the show? That that, that would be nice. So Jake the Snake is in the funeral parlor, coming off a four-year run 
as a babyface. Four years to be a babyface. It's a long time. And he had done all he could do, really. The DDT was still over, but not to the extent where he was going to get cheered just simply because of that move. Because other guys had kind of, you know taken that move and it now we're starting to turn it into a transition move much to Steve Austin's chagrin like you had Jimmy Garvin doing although I guess it was a finisher for him but when Jimmy Garvin is taking your finisher 1991 Jimmy Garvin it's kind of a sign that maybe it's kind of fading away and not having the aura that it once did I do agree good thing that Savage is not there I seem to recall the funeral parlor maybe being later in the show, but if you're going to have Savage eventually show up, you know, keep him off there now and have this in like the near the end of the first third of the program. He Jake still has his baby face music, so it would take a while before you get the trust me, trust me, do 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 all that all that sort of stuff. I don't know much about snake handling, but I do think it's a little strange that he's slapping and flicking at the cobra, probably to get it to continue moving around, just for, you know, to to make it appear good on TV. But Jake had to make some choices. He's certainly still distraught from having his snake killed in the middle of the ring by Earthquake, and then following that up, he's unable to actually get revenge on Earthquake in that feud because much bigger guy and he comes out on top that feud really sort of faded away fairly quickly as you have earthquake joining up with typhoon to form the natural disasters by the summertime that incident took place in late april i think it was on superstars so it's not really all that long and then if you're jake you're seeing all this and you see that earthquake as I recall, isn't sanctioned in any meaningful way for what he did to Damien. So what are you going to do? You're going to take matters into your own hands. He kind of goes all private pile from Full Metal Jacket, get maybe not the thousand-yard stare or anything like that, but Jake maybe has has his evilness a little bit more together. Life is tough, man. When you head down that long road... You gotta make a choice when you get to the fork in that road. Whether you go the right way or you go the other way, it's up to you. Thank you, Jake. You're making my point. Are you going to continue down that babyface law abiding path or are you going to choose another way? And clearly, he chose the other direction. Now, for those kids that are sitting at home listening to your mother and your father tell you, all you got to do is eat your vitamins and grow up and have children and live happily ever after. It's a lie. It's a lie. Because what you've got to do is, every time you make a choice, it can be right or it can be wrong. What was the noise in the closet that night? What was that? What was that you heard behind you in the dark alley? Huh? Was it me? What about when you put your feet off the bed? What was it? Did something grab a hold of you? Remember that every time you turn your back, it could be someone just like me waiting for you. Oh, boy. (laughs) Now this is wonderful. 
you hear vitamins and immediately you think Hulk Hogan, training prayers, vitamins, all that stuff. But listen to how dark the rest of that was. It's not really for kids. I mean, if you're like an eight-year-old kid, listen to that. That's that's some pretty spooky stuff that he's saying. It's like kind of like a grand announcement that yeah, we're we're not we're not just doing kid-friendly stuff here anymore. That when you play with a snake, you can be bitten. And once bitten, I have proven it. You are no more. I'm assuming that's in reference to the warrior who's no longer there, even though, as I said, they mentioned him, you know, for Toys R Us purposes. But it was kind of weird how he gets bitten by the snake in advance of SummerSlam and then is actually in the match, and then that is when he disappears. However, I am willing to accept Evil Jake's retconning of the entire situation. So now, let's get to the real truth of the matter. And the truth is, sin justice... Who the hell do you think you are? Don't make the mistake of stepping into the ring with a snake. Because if you do, you will be bitten like all the rest. And once bitten, again I say you are no more. I will wear the glove to protect me, Sid Justice. What on God's green earth will protect you? Goodness, I don't know if anything a, will protect him. He's not a good person. I can't imagine how Sid Justice is going to handle it. Oh, God, look at that. Much as I bought into this personally because I was very invested in Sid Justice, working even as a proxy for the macho man Randy Savage, the, wrestling does not use ethylene glycol, which is... A thing that is used in breweries, God knows I've been on enough brewery tours, to transfer heat. It's like a heat exchanger from one point to another. And that cannot be accomplished easily in wrestling, where one person is fighting battles for another person. It doesn't work as cleanly as that. Funny enough, as I said, Savage had actually given notice, but WCW, as I said, wasn't exactly going to close. They did not deserve any coffee because coffee is for closers only. So what would Sid do to protect himself? Well, after a short period of time, Sid would end up tearing his bicep and would end up missing the Survivor Series. The very bicep that would bite the macho man Randy Savage in that cobra bite come the November 23rd episode of Superstars. Yeah, from slick. Yep. Yeah, they're going to use this music to wake up the astronauts. The you ever heard him sing? Really? You don't, he can't sing well? <laughs> well, let's just check it out. You might have the opportunity right now to hear him sing. Well, I met this lady and I told her quite a story. Said I'd love her forevermore. But the trouble is I tell the same old story to every girl that walks through the door. Is Piper saying he's not a fan of Jive Soul Bro? Although the Warlord does not come to the ring to that theme for his matchup here against Sonny Blaze. He did not have music of any kind that I recall. Certainly one of the last guys that didn't have... I mean, he had music as a member of the Powers of Pain, but only as babyfaces prior to Survivor Series 88. Was Piper, of course, not there for when the Piledriver album comes out in 1987? 
So he he's gone. But the fact that he's not a fan of that, it's like, okay, Jide Soul Bro is much better and much more fun than the song you did on the wrestling album for everybody. So I don't know. I think a little jealousy on Roddy's part there. Music, he, they talk about to wake up the astronauts, and there's actually a meaning behind that. There had been a space shuttle mission around this time is STS-48, which is the Discovery Space Shuttle, and music is played on the request of the astronauts or their families to wake them up on a daily basis, and for that mission, it was actually all Elvis Presley stuff that was played. Wikipedia is so great because it actually details which Elvis songs were played on each day to wake up the astronauts. It's like, who really cares about that stuff? Well, I do. I really do. So it's way more interesting than the Warlord, who has been thrown into a makeshift feud with Bret the Hitman Hart post-SummerSlam. As I said, Mr. Perfect is hurt, so the Warlord will fill that void for a few months before Brett transfers over to the Mountie. So you figure, why why the Warlord? Why not anybody else? Well, he's a big guy that Bret Hart can conquer, and it doesn't really hurt anybody because you don't have any huge plans for the Warlord going forward. So you can just have Brett beat him on house shows for a couple of months to build himself up that way. Like, okay, Brett establishing himself as a singles competitor he can beat this 300 pound guy and that's perfectly fine and sure enough that that is exactly what happened until you get to november and brett enters the feud with the mountie starting with the match that they had on the november superstars shoulder block gut wrench suplex that feud itself was as forgettable as it gets so if you did forget not remember it that that's fine Slick is babbling towards the camera, but you really can't hear what he's saying because he's nearing the end as well. It's only going to be a few weeks before Davy Boy Smith, the British Bulldog, power slams him straight to hell and you get Harvey Whippleman assuming that role. And the full Nelson finishes for the Warlord. And it makes me wonder why he couldn't do a swinging full Nelson a la Ken Patera, which was kind of a majestic move. You would see it in the opening of the Coliseum videos, you know, Patera swinging some poor jobber around in the full Nelson, but they probably just didn't trust the warlord to do it correctly. I mean, he is what he is. He's a 300-pound-plus guy who you're certainly not going to push all that heavily, but he is worthwhile to keep around to lose to somebody like Bret Hart, who you're trying to establish. Warlord, after that very impressive victory, is confident there is no superstar who can block his path to the Intercontinental Championship. There was a very abrupt cut in the video back to the $20 man Sean Mooney in the event center, and the person that he is referring to that is going to stand in the Warlord's way is another one of the big man's teammates from the 1988 Survivor Series team in that 20-man tag match that I love so much where the Warlord was one of the co-captains on a team that had Shawn Michaels, Davey Boy Smith, and Bret Hart. In this case, it is Bret's former partner, Jim Anvil Neidhart, fresh out of the broadcast booth on Wrestling Challenge, where it really didn't work out. And the anvil isn't exactly setting his sights high, or, depending on your perspective, 
he knew his role, as The Rock would say. I've come out of the commentary booth because, from my bird's eye view, there seems to be some situations out there which I just don't like. People like the bully and his manager, Harvey Waldbecker, or whatever it is. People like the Mountie and that cattle prod and that miserable manager, Jimmy Hart. These are the kind of people that upset me. Guys like Hercules with that chain. I like to get that around his throat and cinch and cinch and cinch. But what I really don't like is guys like the Skinner who hurt little animals. I'm going to get him from the back and skin him good and tight. <laughs> the notion of calling out post power and glory 1991 Hercules is just hilarious to me. Like, what are you trying to accomplish? Are you just trying to pick up easy wins or something like that? <laughs> Quite understand. But again, maybe Anvil just kind of knew his role and just, just wanted to get... The boy wants to work. That's really all there is to it. There was also a Nasty Boys promo as well. But I'm not going to play that because if you've heard them talk once, you've heard every single promo that they've ever done. And the most interesting thing that they were doing around this time was the match that they had with the Legion of Doom. And yes, they're still nominally feuding with those guys after losing the title the month before. The match that the two teams had on the Arsenio Hall show, which took place in November. I may have mentioned it in one of the previous superstars that I covered from November of 91, but I found that very fascinating that, yes, while Arsenio would have wrestling guests on and sometimes they would make news, like in the case of Hogan, and sometimes they would crack me up forever, like the bad, one of the Bad News Brown appearances, that, that, that was rather interesting that they actually had a match on that show but Arsenio he was still hot as hell in 1991. Candy Maldonado with the hesitation allowing Jose Canseco to score and he fails to get Dave Parker at second base so the Oakland A's take take I'll tell you what we're having a a lot of crazy stuff in baseball that happened in 1989 start with the fact that the chicago cubs actually made the playoffs for only the second time since world war ii winning the national league east in august alone you have commissioner bart giamatti banning pete rose for life for gambling on baseball while manager of the cincinnati reds and then giamatti dies less than two weeks later himself just really crazy stuff. But none of that could top what happened the night of Game 3 of the World Series. Or what was supposed to be scheduled for Game 3 of the World Series in San Francisco. The fact that there was an earthquake there in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, during a World Series that the Giants were in. That's one thing. But the fact that they were also playing Oakland... At the time, so you have the two Bay Area teams in the World Series for the only time that that would ever happen, 
They're playing each other, and you have one of the biggest earthquakes. I, I think it's one of the top five earthquakes in terms of magnitude that has hit the Bay Area. The fact that it happened like at that exact time, on the intro into that game, where Al Michaels somehow manages to keep his composure. Meanwhile, Tim McCarver still wants to babble about Dave Parker sliding into second back in Game 2. This is the most on-brand thing Tim McCarver has ever done. Just a really crazy thing. And they picked it up, I think it was 10 days later, and the A's ended up sweeping the series. But I remember wanting that series to go 7 because it actually would have spilled into November for the first time. And I thought, as a 10-year-old, will that be the only time we ever see baseball in November? Oh, how wrong I would be, because now the World Series routinely has gone into November at least three or four times in more recent years. So for our next match, we have Martin Roy. (laughs) This is the enhancement side, clearly. Teaming up with Joe Milano, who is one smart cookie, or at least Pepperidge Farm remembers it that way. They are taking on the natural disasters and typhoon and earthquake, which seems like a bit of a waste of earthquake. But again, what are you really going to do with him? after a certain point as a singles wrestler you already did the program with hulk hogan the warrior was occupied with the undertaker anyway so that's that's your other main big guy so there's not much left for him unless you want earthquake randomly challenging for the intercontinental title and how are you going to work a feud with him and brett it it seemed you know I, i don't think that that would have worked So all his other options are occupied, so you just throw him in a tag team and make him a threat in the tag division, especially now with the Legion of Doom becoming the champions. And with the way they dispatched the Nasty Boys, you'd probably want a new challenger on the horizon. And why not put together a team with a total combined weight of 800 pounds or whatever? Poor Poor Fred Ottman as Typhoon, though. I mean, much is made about him tripping and falling as the Shockmaster and just how silly he looked in the whole tugboat get-up with the striped shirt. But let's not overlook the fact that his hair is ridiculous, even by 1980s mullet standards. He's another guy that I think should have been booked in a hair match at some point for for the good of the nation. I mean, even Joe Dirt would look at that guy's hair and be like, that. that is... That is completely preposterous. Why is why would you wear hair like that outside? So the Legion of Doom was moved kind of on to both Jimmy Hart teams. They're, yeah, they're still nominally feuding with the Nasty Boys, but the natural disasters are the bigger threat. So think of it maybe as a feud with Jimmy Hart in general. But they do the inset promo, and what they're doing is that thing where Vince is pretending like he's talking to them, like they're standing by, waiting for Vince to say, Hey, Legion of Doom, what do you think of blah, blah, blah? <laughs> and it, this is a very peculiar promo, even by LOD standards. I think we're going to have Legion of Doom join us here in a second. There we go, Animal Hawk. Gentlemen, the Nasty Boys are a tremendous threat. What about Jimmy Hart's other team, huh? Tell me. You talking about the natural disasters? You know, typhoons and earthquakes are something that naturally disturb the process of the earth. Well, you see, your problem is natural disasters is that we are naturally disturbed. Yeah, Animal doesn't even get to talk at all. He just kind of stands there. So my theory is that Joe Laurinaitis actually had laryngitis 
That's why he couldn't talk. Green tea, people, for when you lose your voice. It's, uh, I think, the best thing for you. And if you add a little bit of honey to it, that, that makes it even better. Earthquake controls early, but wait a second. Here is Randy Savage crashing the broadcast booth just in time. Wait a minute. Look who's coming out. Right. I told you. 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 It's really disturbed. I am, and I admit it. But I'm also on probation right now. You know what that feels like, Piper? Yeah, well, no, nonetheless, uh, before the hot rod answers that, on question, ladies and gentlemen, the voice you are hearing is that of the macho man, Randy Savage. I'm not sure that I missed you now. What's left of me, but what's left of me is still better than the way some people are. They reiterate the fact that he's on probation, so he can't pull any sort of funny business going forward. Earthquake continues his control with an atomic drop, which honestly seems like a really weird move for a 450-pound guy to do. (laughs) You don't think a fat guy is doling out the atomic drops. And Typhoon gets in there, and he starts doing similar stuff to Earthquake, but much crappier because he's clearly the B guy in this team. Avalanches by both guys, uh, although... (laughs) Whenever Earthquake does an avalanche, she, I, I always want to say he sharked him, but no, he, he's a man. He's a man, damn it. And Earthquake power slam and the big elbow where he leaps way up in the air and then follows that up with the Earthquake splash, which as a finisher, certainly very effective, but I can never take my eyes off the fact that his balls are right in the face of the poor enhancement guy who probably didn't get any more money for this match. It's not like when Jake would put the snake on you or when Beefcake would cut your hair or how they'd get a little bit extra money. No bonus for getting John Tenth's balls in your face. But uh, these two guys, for all my jokes about Fred Ottman, Typhoon, they're a good enough team, and they'll certainly make my top 100 and greatest WWE tag teams ever list. I, mainly because I love Earthquake. This is the this was the tag team that he was in, so th- this is where you'd have... I mean, I'm certainly not going to count his pairing with Dino Bravo, that's for sure. I think, at the in the end, they were harmed by... The many crappy finishes they would have against Money Incorporated, which shouldn't be held against them because that was pretty much the case for every single team that went up against IRS and DiBiase. Every man I've ever faced in the World Wrestling Federation has walked away knowing what law, order, and justice is all about. Knowing that the big boss man doesn't play silly games with lawbreakers. IRS, you've come into the World Wrestling Federation and pointed a finger at me. Said you've singled me out as a tax cheat, as a man who takes bribes under the table. Well, punk, where I come from, that's not singling me out. That's calling me out for a fight. And then the World Wrestling Federation, I'm the only law and order. And you're going to find out, IRS, that I ain't going to play any silly games with you, punk. Get ready to serve hard time. It appears that at times, Erwin R. Scheister talks out of his mouth before his brain has a chance to catch up. The big boss man coming off the high of sending the Mountie to jail at SummerSlam, and the Bobby Heenan feud before that, where he ran through members of the family. He, he's very hot in 1991, and now he's in a feud with IRS, 
And did anybody ever come out of a feud with that guy better than they were before? His sunglasses are kind of in like a weird spot where it's on like that lapel that says Big Boss Man on it. And his shirt is open to the navel. It's a very odd look for the boss man. (laughs) I think maybe in the late summer he just needed to cool off. But we have a second promo, and I remember watching this episode probably about a month ago, very late at night, and when this came on, I was so delighted, because we get to hear in extended form from the Berserker. Bret Hart, let me tell you something. This is a big man's world, and when you go against the Berserker, everybody goes down. I don't care if you're short, tall, fat, or skinny. I don't care if you got goofy hair or goofy eyes or greasy hair. You're going down, Bret Hart, and there's going to be no doubt in the people's mind who the toughest man on the face of the earth is the Berserker. A lot of people talk about John Nord's general flakiness in the wrestling business. By the way, what was up with Fuji there? He sounded positively masturbatory behind him as Berserker is trying to speak. I mean, he gets full 40 seconds or whatever it was here, and how many times does he get that? But he showed a real knowledge of the company that he's a part of because he said it's a big man's world and the World Wrestling Federation, the ultimate big man's territory. So... Good on you, Berserker. Shoot your shot against Bret Hart while you have the chance, while he's looking for challengers, because you may not have another crack at it down the road. Unfortunately, the world was not quite ready for Mo, Mabel, and Oscar, so instead we get another Jim Duggan match. He's taking on Brian Donahue, so no relation to Phil Donahue. Uh, Vince says that Duggan is a man on a mission. I don't know what mission that is. I mean, with Duggan, he was just kind of doing the patriotic gimmick in 91 as the kind of underneath guy to Hogan. Jim Duggan is the name of the town manager in the town where I live. There there, There was a town meeting the other night. I did not go to it. Uh, in fact, I don't think I have in the eight years that I've been here. But I, our Jim Duggan is a little bit more clean. than I don't know how he is as a promo. I should probably get involved with you know the town politics or whatever. But I'm really sort of ambivalent about it all because I don't think it really would matter for any time that I, I would put in. Can you imagine Hacksaw Jim Duggan as a manager? I have trouble believing you know that he could pull it off and then i remember oh yeah that's probably his bit when he goes to indie shows and appears is you know he'll introduce the baby face get everybody fired up and then he makes a giant sack of cash and i kind of sound stupid so never mind just forget that i said that the what's more interesting than the jim duggan match to me is the dynamic between the macho man and roddy piper in the booth you don't think of them as ever really being combative with each other, but things got a little feisty during this one. Piper, do you have any kind of sympathy for me? Uh, no. Too late to answer anyway, no matter what you said. But I do I do feel sorry for Miss Elizabeth. Well, Why? Uh, she's married to me? What are you trying well, to say? No, 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 I'm sure that's not what he meant to say. Let's stay with the action, guys, all right? Sometimes Randy Savage, you know, you hear this conversation, it seems innocuous, but it almost 
feels like he's legitimately angry about what was being said there. And of course, you know, Macho Man and Liz did have problems that would lead to a divorce in 1992. I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I don't know exactly what those things were, but, you know, that, that might explain why he might be defensive at times. Vince, once again, manages to awkwardly squeeze in another suburb- suburban commando plug. going to see anything nice and smooth in the ring with Hacksaw Jim Duggan. He is taking care of business, much like the Hulkster takes care of business with his new movie, Suburban Commando. I just picture the notes that Vince had where he's like, I got to get in two Suburban Commando plugs. I already got the one in. I got to do it during this Duggan match because I won't be able to in the last segment. Like, all right, he's taking care of business. And all right. And you know who else takes care of business? Hulk Hogan in Suburban Commando. Oh, my goodness. Vince still had his fastball as an announcer at this point. I I think once you get past 92, things start to fade away for him a little bit. Three-point stance, clothesline finishes. (laughs) As I forever admire Hacksaw Jim Duggan for how he got so incredibly over while doing so incredibly little in the ring, I'm not going to criticize him for not being the same level of brawler or wrestler that he was in Mid-South UWF because he didn't have to. And he did the 2x4 toss, which he claims he never dropped the 2x4, or at least on film he never did. And I estimate he threw it about 15, 16 feet in the air, and he did make the one-handed catch. So, again, kudos to old Hacksaw, the guy who seems to be on Greetings from Allentown once every three weeks, whether I want him to or not. Sherry, you were the World Wrestling Federation Ladies Champion, right? Yes. And when you went in the ring and the bell rang, what did that mean? Match starts. And when the bell rang the second time, what did that mean? Match is over and I win. Right. And if the bell rang a third time, what did that mean? That means I got the shaft. That's right, Tony, and that's exactly what I got. Virgil, you're walking around in a dream world telling everybody that you're a champion. You are nothing but a common thief. The referee cheated, he stopped the match, he restarts the match, and he gives it to you, and Tony stands behind it. Well, the one thing that you still are, Virgil, very capable of doing, is spit polishing and shining. And you better keep my belt shined up, because the thought of you wearing it makes me sick. Soon enough, it'll be right back where it belongs. Around my waist! I'm sure Sherry was used to getting the sh- Hey, hey! <laughs> yeah, DiBiase still smarting from that loss to Virgil at SummerSlam, which I feel was a really excellently booked match, as Ted describes. And he's right to feel somewhat screwed by how that went down because the referee would not, you know, avoid calling for a DQ. But I think the fact that the WrestleMania match ended in a kind of disputed countout the way that it did, that he didn't want the match to end that way. I don't know who who the referee was at the WrestleMania match. I just remember Danny Davis getting hit in the nuts with Roddy Piper's crutch after the match, and that was the funniest part of it. Of course, it would take a couple months in the help of a repo man, but DiBiase would get the million-dollar title back. The other promo we have in this event center with no event is from the Bushwhackers. And I debated whether to actually play this, but you know what? Even though I'm not a fan of the act, I'm just going to play it anyway. Wow! I got the butch! Yeah! 
Hey, mate! Where the bloody hell are you beat, mate? Oh, yay! Oh, Catherine, I've been on the phone! You know, the telephone they have here in the United States! The Al Capone! Yeah. Yeah. And I've been talking to Mother! How the hell is she, mate? Oh, she's lovely, tell you, Mother! Bloody good, mate! You know what she sounded like, mate? What did she sound like, She mate? sounded like a bloody box of fluffy ducks! A box of fluffy ducks? Yeah! Last uh. time she just sounded like a bag of fluffy ducks! Yo! But this time it was a box! And she was so pleased yes, that we're going so well! And the... Hello, Mother! I'll probably never be able to make sense out of anything the Bushwhackers ever did, so why don't I just move on to the scheduled debut of Nature Boy, Ric Flair. And yes, I'm going to call him Nature Boy because in his robe, it does say Nature Boy on the back of it, but his scheduled opponent here is a fellow by the name of Mark Thomas, who I thought would never come up again, just a regular enhancement guy in the WWF in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, maybe not one of the bigger names that you would remember. However, there is an oddity on this guy because a guy calling himself Mark Thomas turned up on an episode of 205 Live last August and was about to face Noam Dar, who ran him down on the microphone prior to the match and basically referred to him as the guy who was the jobber in the early 90s. So they were making it seem like it was this guy, but it was a completely different guy because he was built differently. Obviously, it's 25 years, and this Mark Thomas would be a lot older. We (laughs) We didn't get a real good look at him because they only showed him briefly, and his back was to the hard camera, so that means four years in NXT for him, because he didn't know how to work to the hard camera. Vince admonishes Piper to cool it when Flair comes out, because Piper had just spit on the former WCW World Heavyweight title, the NWA World Heavyweight title, on an episode of the Funeral Parlor, where Bobby Heenan was out there, with the belt, it was. I want to say it was in late August or early September, and Piper spitting on the belt didn't sit well with a lot of people because it really sort of sent... The, when you're actually spitting on the opposition's belt, it kind of, you know, devalues what Flair had coming in. But okay, I did not feel that way personally. I thought it was just Piper taking a stand for his own company and just not liking Flair for being involved with Heenan. So as Flair comes out, he opens his robe and shows his balls. I mean, his belt. He he is wearing the belt because clearly it was cleaned and sanitized after Piper had spit on it. As I said, the robe says Nature Boy. So... Rick, rather than going down there and having a match with Mark Thomas, it's going to last two or three minutes because I said in the past, you don't really think of Ric Flair as a guy who works squash matches. So he needs a little something to keep him engaged. So he walks over to the commentary desk, which is there in the arena, even though you, you think of commentary on these shows where they're in front of a green screen for the intros and you think of them doing it in a studio in Stamford or whatever. But they're they're all there because now we've got to do this big angle. And basically, Flair decides, 
I'm going to act like a complete dick because I can't show my dick on television. And he starts shoving Piper, who's just sitting there trying to mind his own business, stay cool, shoves him in the back, slaps him upside the head like like he's Deacon Jones or something, and the headset comes flying off. I don't want no trouble. I need a job, and I've got a job. Besides, if he's a real-world champion... Why'd he be cool? Wait a minute. We don't want any trouble, please. A lot of this is pretty visual, so I could have used Vince doing a little bit more talking and channeling his inner Lance Russell and saying, get get, get out of here, get out of here, you know, like what Lance Russell used to do in the studio. This is set up so well. You know, he hits Piper with the belt because... Savage is there, and you think, oh, well, he'll attack Flair. But no, Savage is on probation, so he can't touch Ric Flair. So he can, he can just go out there and act with impunity. And Piper was also admonished earlier, it seems, where he's not on the same double-secret probation that Randy Savage is, but he was, I think, admonished to not strike Ric Flair first. So he's not allowed to smack Rick around. Now, I do think that when he gets the headset slapped off him, he would have a case of self-defense going before Tunney, who honestly, though, is acting like a water-cooler dictator, and I don't, I'm not sure I like Piper's chances even then. So he, Rick puts the boots to Piper. They're, they're up on the platform, and now, now they're down on the floor. Vince is making the call. I don't even need to tell you that it's a Bruno chair. You know, the wooden ones that you would see in Allentown. And Vince throws down his headset. And by the way, not the last time Vinnie Mac would throw down his headset in disgust in the nation of Canada. I'm thinking of In Your House 4 and the infamous story of him being very displeased with the Diesel versus the British Bulldog main event. Fucking thing sucks! Vince drops down to check on Piper. And when he kind of, you know, does a brief check there. And then he goes over to try and keep Flair away. But Piper now has the chair. And he's getting up swinging. And he doesn't care who he hits. And he ends up nailing Vince McMahon in the back. The first bump that Vince McMahon had taken in 14 years since (laughs) the manager of the year ceremony from 1977. Where he merely, you know, took a header over the top rope. 
still 14 years, long time between <laughs> 14 years to take a bump is a long time. And Vince is out cold on the floor. And Flair, he's showing up, holding up the belt. And then he just leaves and goes to the back, which I found humorous because what happens to Mark Thomas? Does he get a win by uh, forfeit or something here? And if so, how does that affect Noam Dar's speech against the fake Mark Thomas on that 205 Live? So this is just great stuff. And they they go to commercial. There's no commentary because all of them are down on the floor. You got two announcers left laying, and the other one couldn't do a damn thing about it. Vince is carried off on the stretcher, which is basically just the canvas and the two sticks, and he's got his arms folded like the Undertaker is going for a pinfall on him. Piper not doing the stretcher thing. In fact, he is sort of crawling to the back, not unlike what happened in the very first episode of Greetings Mallentown, that also was a late September episode of Superstars from 1986, when he was attacked in the Piper's Pit flower shop duel, and nobody had come out to help Piper in that case because he had only recently turned babyface, and he crawls to the crawls to try and get back at Adonis and Orton in that case, and here he is crawling towards the back, and he's not accepting anybody's help, not savages or whoever, to help him get up on his two feet and walk to the back. I thought it was rather interesting. I don't think it was an intentional callback that they did. I think it was just something that is ingrained in Roddy Piper's character. They throw up the copyright notice, you know, Superstars, copyright 1991, and that's a wrap. And there's no one there to tell us who's going to be on Superstars next week because there's nobody at the commentary desk. But I'm here to tell you that on the following week, Superstars, you would see Virgil, IRS. Oh, wait. It's probably for the best that they didn't tell. <laughs> they picked the perfect week to not tell people who was going to be on the next show. Because Virgil and IRS is... Leah. Could they have used uh, you know a Canadian celebrity uh, for the next week, maybe? With, with Vince clearly hurt from all of this. Could they have used uh, Bob Cole... Brian Williams, Ron McClain to fill in for Vince? No, just business as usual. Vince is back at the commentary desk alongside Piper and Savage for the next week's show. And everybody lived happily ever after. Except for me, because I'm upset still about the missing parts of this video. Although this show has run fairly long as it is. Missing the ad for Hot Ticket. Hulk Hogan, A Real American Story, story, which I actually got on pay-per-view, but the tape is lost to history. A trailer for Suburban Commando, which wouldn't do me many much good because I have not actually seen the movie in the El Matador vignette that I talked about earlier. But that is a wrap for WWF Superstars for September 28th, 1991. Weiss has just set a Super Bowl record with 12 catches. He's in motion. Montana! Ah, uh, yes, Super Bowl twenty three. That one competitive Super Bowl we had in a seven-year span from 1984 through 1990. In this game, 20-16, to 16, even though San Francisco comes back at the end, not maybe as close as it should have been. I know that San Francisco's kicker, Mike Kofer, missed a couple field goals in the game. 
Jerry Rice had 215 receiving yards, so clearly San Francisco was able to move the ball. Now Cincinnati dropped an interception in the end zone at one point, and then San Francisco immediately tied the game 13-13 right after that. But Cincinnati didn't even score an offensive touchdown in the game. Their one score that they had was on a kickoff return for a touchdown in the late third quarter to, I think, make it 13-6. to It's a very low-scoring game until you get to about the final 20 minutes. And I was kind of a Bengals fan at the time. I had a shirt, one of those ones that they had at the time in the 80s, that said Bengals 80. And I, I couldn't remember who wore number 80 for the Bengals. But, in fact, it was Chris Collinsworth, which we're – Pretty much what we have in common is we're two white guys who have been told to shut up on numerous occasions. So that was a sporting event that made me sad. The Bengals have not won a playoff game since after the 1990 season. So they only won after losing that Super Bowl. And then the the game after the playoff game that they won was a divisional game against the Raiders. The, the Bo Jackson gets injured game. So the Bengals... 30 years of playoff futility is sometimes called the curse of Bo Jackson. But I'll tell you what's not cursed. ProWrestlingOnly.com. So check it out to explore other podcasts like Lucha Afterground, which I was on earlier this week, along with match reviews, features and retrospectives, reviews of wrestling books, video games, and matches, playlists, wrestler appearances in non-wrestling TV shows, like, hey, John Ayers playing for the 49ers. Now, maybe there's not great detail on that, but his appearances in wrestling. Movies, more. You can join the conversation by signing up at the Pro Wrestling Only Forums. Been online for over a decade with over 2,000 registered members and an archive of over 4 million threads. The message board is a vibrant community all on its own. And whether you want to talk about a specific match in the match discussion archive, take a deep dive in the microscope form, or discuss more general topics from wrestling's past and present, check all of this out at ProWrestlingOnly.com. Now, I do want to get in plugs for friends of the show the our vantage point podcast in their most recent episode they took a look at the first edition of wwf superstars of wrestling from september 6 1986 when they turned over the tv and they subsequently angered me with their thoughtless bashing of the legendary george thorogood in the destroyers let me tell you something right now okay i am not about to take seriously the musical opinions of somebody who also thinks that the ending to Starcade 97 was actually good, looking in your direction, Michael Quinn. I mean, George Thorogood and the Destroyers, yeah, I don't celebrate their entire catalog or anything like that, but you get one bourbon, one scotch, and one beer, which I've had that a couple of times at home, and it, I mean, it's wrecked me each time I've attempted that. But if I ever do purchase a bar and open it. I, I am going to have a drink special called The Destroyer, which would be one bourbon, probably like a Jim Beam, one scotch, probably something lower end, and then one beer, so like a Miller Lite, a Budweiser, or something like that. Call it The Destroyer, charge like 16 bucks or something like that, and just kind of make it my novelty. Of course, they don't allow you to do that in Massachusetts, so I'd have to move, hopefully to a warmer climate. Now, on the wrestling podcast about nothing with Brian Malonis and Mike Crockett. They talk about 
Hidden Gems in New England Wrestling, which is actually a show that they had done a couple weeks ago, but there are a lot of people left on the table that they didn't get to in that show. So another show devoted to those Hidden Gems. I particularly enjoyed listening to the last one, so I have that one queued up for later today as I am recording this. And do check out the archives of the Sportscasters with my often podcast partner, Steve Bennett. He's had many great guests, Joe Buck, Jeff Perlman, Matthew Berry from ESPN Fantasy. And while you're checking out those archives, you can check out the extensive archives of Greetings from Allentown, dating all the way back to that Roddy Piper beatdown in the flower shop back in 1986, which was episode one that I recorded back in February of 2017. And don't forget to rate and review on iTunes, Apple Music, for both the Greetings from Allentown feed and also for the Pro Wrestling Only feed as well. Again, I urge you to check out all the other great shows on this feed. As for next week's show that I have planned here, I actually don't have one set in stone. I'm going to decide between three different things. One of them is a Memphis show. Another one is a JCP show from the 80s. Not entirely sure where I'm going to go with it, even though I know exactly what I'm doing for show number 91 in a couple of weeks. So do stay tuned for that. I'll be letting you know what it'll be on social media probably on Twitter since my Facebook usage isn't all that high and probably because I even after a year and a half I really still don't know what the hell I'm doing over there again thank you so much for listening and do tune in next Thursday for another exciting episode of greetings from Allentown Hey, hey, hey. Oh, and it's got take very hard to stay. Hey, 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 hey. And we're living here in Allentown. Do, 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 do.